God in unexpected places. This is the Messy Spirituality Podcast. Here's Jason Elam. Welcome in, everybody, to the Messy Spirituality Podcast. As previously mentioned, I'm Jason Elam. Happy to have with me today Matthew J. DiStefano. Matt is an author, podcaster, Pathios blogger, and all-around brilliant guy. His books include All Set Free, From the Blood of Abel, and the recently released Heretic. He's one of the three co-hosts of the popular Heretic Happy Hour and is a co-host of the forthcoming podcast, The Bonfire Sessions. Matt, it's great to have you with us on Messy Spirituality. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks for that lovely intro. Well, I'm really glad to have you here. Uh, You complete the uh, heretical trinity. Keith was on our first episode. Jamal was on our second episode. So it was time to bring in, you know, we saved the best for last, obviously. Yeah, you you got the Son and the Holy Spirit. Now you have the Father. (laughs) That's got to be heresy. That was a joke. That, That was a joke, people. That was a joke. All right. Matt, why don't you start off by telling us a little about you and your faith journey? Oh, okay, sure. Yeah, I um, I grew up in Northern California. I was born in San Jose, and uh, moved up to a little town called Paradise. Uh, it it everyone might know uh, Paradise now because of the campfire and the fact that um, pretty much the entire town burned down uh, last November. Uh, it was the day after my wife's birthday, actually. Um, so yeah, I, I grew up. I grew up there, and now live in Chico, California, which is you know like 15 minutes from uh, Paradise, and been living here with my wife and my daughter. And I grew up, I guess, uh, to answer the the faith journey, I'll, I'll give you maybe the elevator pitch because it's kind of a long and windy windy road, but. Um, I grew up in a, uh, I'd say, borderline fundamentalist uh, evangelical background. I uh, hell was a doctrine that we always had to affirm. The rapture, you know, the left behind sort of theology, inerrant Bible, and all of that. And in my twenties, well, I mean, I, I was involved in the church before that in high school, playing music and worship for like ten years. And then in my twenties, I. I always had a, a a philosophical mind. I was always drawn by deep questions and not really being comfortable with all the stock answers that I had or were given. And that kind of led me down this path of questioning everything uh, to the point where I questioned even the existence of God and sort of hung out on the fence of atheism slash agnosticism. Uh, in my late 20s, simply because it seemed that the God or the theology that was given to me was something that I could no longer find credible. And but then discovered some thinkers and some theologians who were talking about God in an entirely different way, a God who was love, full stop, a God who is corrective rather than punitive. So then that sort of led me down this deep, deep rabbit trail that I'm still on of, 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 a, of a God that isn't a deity, a God that is bigger, that is not in this uh, box called evangelicalism or fundamentalism, um, or even, and I'll, I say this a little bit with hesitance, or even Christianity. I, I do, I still consider myself a Christian, However, I think that there are a lot of mystics and teachers from other faith traditions that also approach God 
and and experience God and talk about God and say amazing things about God. So yeah, that's that's sort of where I'm at and how I got there in a nutshell. I, I don't think my story is all that unique from what I've heard with people who have grown up in any sort of fundamentalism or fundy light, as I, I like to call it. I mean, we weren't fundamentalists, but our churches were a little more fundamentalists. And we, you know, my parents were, my parents are good thinkers in their own right. And we're always like, yeah, question things and come up with your own answers and all that stuff. So though we may disagree, my parents and I, to this day, they're definitely willing to listen and, and talk and things like that. So I always kind of call it, I, I had a fundamentalist light uh, upbringing, and now I am just continuing this ever-growing journey and, like I said, diving more and more down the rabbit trail and learning and studying and listening and hopefully growing. You mentioned some thinkers and theologians that impacted you as you were kind of reconstructing your faith. Who were some of those people and how did they impact you? Well, the first that sticks out in my mind is a philosopher, a retired philosopher by the name of Thomas Talbot. And his book, well, let's see, it was a book that he contributed a couple essays towards was uh, Universal Salvation, The Current Debate. And then his book that he wrote was The Inescapable Love of God. And that was the first thinker and, and literature, his literature uh, was the first that really helped me be like, wow, some people are talking about God in an, in an entirely different manner. And this is something deep. I liked all the logic and the philosophy behind it, but but something even, even more powerful was it just resonated in my heart and soul. And I, I really can't articulate what that necessarily means, um, but it just impacted me in such a way where I just was just smiling while while reading this really scholarly book, and that doesn't happen probably all that often. But um, so he was the first one. But then then I got into um, you know I, I discovered Robin Perry and Brad Jersak, and and then the big one was Rene Girard. His his insights, and we'll probably probably be getting into this more as we go here. But his insights really helped me in how I approached the Bible and understanding anthropology and culture and religion and sacrifice and how all these things come to be and why they're so prevalent uh, throughout a lot of our, most of our faith traditions, certainly our ancient religions and our evolution away from this like archaic form of religion. And so his stuff really, really started impacting me, but I feel like I discovered him a little bit into my, whatever you want to call it, reconstruction or, or what have you. Yeah, I keep, and during my own reconstruction or renovation of the heart, however you want to refer to it, I keep hearing this term mimetic theory associated with Gerard. Um, I've searched out the meaning of it and the implications of it, and I seem to find some conflicting information based on who the source is of the information I'm looking at. I, I wanted to turn to somebody that I trust and somebody that I think is a, a brilliant thinker. And so that's why I contacted you and asked you on this program. Could you break down mimetic theory for somebody who is not a theologian, uh, maybe even is not all that deep of a thinker, but wants to understand the concept? 
Well, sure. It's a, um, I mean, it's a theory of human behavior. And so it belongs in the sciences. And anytime we get things in the sciences, we're going to have some conflicting things and different people are going to approach different theories in a, in a different way. And, and I think that's the beauty of, um, you know, of study of science of anything like that. The, I guess the quick, uh, the quick rundown of it, the way I understand it is that it's a theory that explains, well, first off human desire. And what it states is that for the most part, our desires are not fixed. So, for instance, a cow has a desire for grass, and that's, that's a form of instinct. But human desire is not necessarily like that. Um, we derive our desires from the perceived desires of others. And it's, it's why we can see the, uh, one of the classic examples is two children in a room full of toys, and one picks up one for whatever reason. It's next to them, or it shines a certain way. And then there is this draw or pull from the other child to desire that toy, not necessarily because it has any intrinsic value or you can't sell it on the market for a lot of money. And, and they're not, we're, not, we're not thinking about things like that. It's, it's more of this non-conscious or subconscious pull toward desiring something that, one, that, that another desires. And uh, uh, it's not just children, obviously. Uh, adults do this as well. It's why... The, the fashion industry seems to understand this. You know, they use people who, as a culture or society, that, that are deemed desirable, athletes and supermodels and actors and actresses and musicians are used in advertising. Because if we pick up on the desire that they like this certain brand, then we are going to want to have the same product, right? right. The, the problem of, is, you know, if there's, if I have one thing and you desire it, there's going to be conflict for that. There's going to be jealousy and rivalry. And this creates quite a problem in our cultures. And um, I mean, there's so many different avenues I could take it from there. But that's essentially the, uh, the, the real quick of it. And it's a, uh, it's, it's a, it's, it's basically stating that we are learning and we are desiring through imitation. It doesn't mean we're entirely copycats of one another. We are, we are still uh, autonomous in a way, but all this is going on beneath, beneath the surface, you know, beneath our conscious awareness. And it can be a fairly sobering sort of thing when you realize this and, uh, anyone who who I think understands mimetic theory realizes that it can create. It's, it's not a bad thing per se. It's not bad to learn through imitation, but it does create quite a quite uh, quite a problem. And Girard noticed this uh, first in in literature in some of the French uh, writers, and then and then you know Russian writers of Dostoevsky, and then Shakespeare. He noticed that this was going on with a lot of the characters, and then when he moved to the Bible noticed in, in the mythologies throughout there, it's like, okay, this, this sort of uh, desire is playing out all the time. The beautiful thing he found about the Bible is that it starts to expose this. It starts to shed light to it. There's this revelation going on starting in the Hebrew scriptures and then culminating with the gospel that sheds a light to this. Can you tell me some practical implications of mimetic theory? How do we see it played out in the world today? 
Well, uh, the, the example of, of like the fashion industry using certain models, uh, we, we take on certain folks as models. And, and I don't, I'm not saying that the fashion industry understands mimetic theory, but I think they understand human behavior in, in, in enough of a way to use those models as the objects of our desire. Um, because they're realizing maybe, maybe we don't desire the brand per se, we desire the one who desires the brand. So if you can use if you can use Tom Brady or Peyton Manning if you you know in in sports or you can use musicians like I mean whoever Rihanna Beyonce we want to be like them and, and and more much more stronger of a pull to that than whatever clothes they might be wearing or uh you know perfume or cologne that they happen to use so it's um, that I, I think we see that play out. We see it play out in our schools and with our children. You can just step back and watch children and, and notice this sort of thing going on of, of kids. One time, my daughter, when she was, she's almost nine now, I think she was like four. She, uh, I got like a package in the mail or something, and she was down the hall and she picked up on the fact that I had something and she yells down the hall. She says, Daddy, I want that. What is it? And she had, it had no idea. It could be like she didn't want that necessarily because it was probably a book, to be honest with you, a boring book, as she would call it. Right. But the fact that I had something and as, you know, children, we first our first models are our parents and then siblings and other and then, you know, people we go to school with. Uh, but just the fact that I had something, she had no idea what it was. She wanted it. And she it was this like almost. um she didn't think about why she wanted it. She didn't think about what it might be. It was just this like um, almost uh, just coming out of her like, I want that. What is it? And th those are um, just a couple, I guess, quick examples. I mean, we can, we can, I could probably come up with 100 examples if you give me enough time. But <laughs> we, we, we probably don't want to be here all day. <laughs> probably not. Um, does it play into national boundaries and war and things on a larger scale? Oh, certainly. And, and this is uh, what Gerard noticed when he was studying uh, ancient religions and tr uh, tribal deities and, and things of this nature. We've been doing this since we've evolved into the modern form of what we call a human being. And there's evidence of this through ancient myths and, and um, uh, archaeological sites and, and, and the art that, um, that we've seen uh, there, there's evidence of this sort of, you can call it nationalism, tribalism, um, playing out throughout our entire evolutionary process. And well, just going to like the ancients, you know, you had these tribal deities that um, your tribe or your culture, or your religion would make sacrifices to, and you sacrifice to this one god or goddess uh, or a handful of them because we started as polytheists, right? Um, monotheism wasn't on the scene from the start. And other tribes would have their gods and make their sacrifices to their gods and so they can receive blessings and all this. Um, and when tribes would run into other tribes, it, uh, you know, obviously there was a lot of conflict, a lot of war. I mean, you go to the, like the Hebrew Bible, I mean, goodness gracious, there's, there's so much war and tribalism and tribes with particular gods that they worshipped running into tribes with different gods that they worshipped. And if one tribe 
destroyed the other, that God would die and the people left would, uh, you know, now start worshiping this other God. Um, so, and, and, but we're doing the same thing. We do the same thing with nations. We do the same thing with religions. We do the same thing even within a religion, right? So the Baptists fight the Catholics and vice versa. And we have this infighting and 40 some odd thousand denominations that are all apparently right. But, and it's, this is obviously not just contained within Christianity. I think every faith tradition has, has this, um, playing out. And, and I, and I would put a caveat that mimetic theory doesn't explain everything. It's not like a, um, a theory of everything. It's a, uh, a tool in the tool belt, let's say. I think I've heard that analogy, but it's a helpful tool. Does mimetic theory inform your understanding of the gospel? Uh, sure, yeah. I, I think, I will say this, that if we're talking about the gospel, if we're talking about the cross, if we're talking about atonement, I think that all of those things are much bigger and broader and wider than any of our theories can suggest. So if we're just talking about atonement, like the penal substitution atonement, I think that's the default one for us in the West. Right. I, I reject that. But what I would replace it with would not begin, well, it would begin to explain the cross, let's say, but it's not the end-all be-all. So I might talk about Christus Victor and moral influence and scapegoating theory and use all of them as a tool and also say that in a way I think Jesus was a sacrifice and even maybe a substitute, but not, um, not something that changes God's mind. Um, it's, it flips the whole traditional notion of sacrifice on its head. We sacrifice to the gods throughout history. And then along comes Jesus. And it's like, well, actually God puts forth the son, I think to expose the fact that this is what we do. It's not necessarily a desire of God's. So I think mimetic theory helps, um, it helps understand why we have theories like penal substitution, where we, we see it in this traditionally sacrificial way, right? Like uh, uh, the sun needs to be killed, I guess, in the most grotesque of ways in order to satisfy the wrath or the justice of God or the honor if we're, if we're you know, uh, if Anselm, if we're following Anselm. But most of us probably follow Calvin in our in our upbringing in that it's to satisfy the wrath of God. That is the the traditionally sacrificial way. And mimetic theory helps explain why we think of things in this manner. And, and, and it helps us kind of strip away all these assumptions that we make about our relation to the divine. And when it does that, and, and as it does that, I think then we can then we can reapproach things in a, I would say, not only a non-sacrificial way, but a like reversed sacrificial way. Like God is so loving that God would incarnate God's self and stand in a place where it exposes the heart of God and it exposes the sort of corrupted heart of humanity. You talked earlier about the Hebrew scriptures and the gospels exposing mimetic theory. What are some of the ways that it does that? Well, I don't know if I put it in that way, I'm not sure I would say it exactly in that way. I think, um, I think it exposes some of the, uh, the, the mythologies and the rituals and the prohibitions that, that humanity comes up with because we're mimetic beings. Uh, so 
I'll, I'll go back to let's go back to the uh, the Cain and Abel story. The Cain and Abel story is not necessarily unique in the fact that uh, one brother kills another brother and then founds a city. You know, this this is a murder, a founding murder myth that we find in other ancient traditions. So in Rome's tradition, you have Romulus and you have Remus. And these are two brothers that get into an argument of about where they're going to found the city, uh, which would then be named Rome. It's named after Romulus because Romulus uh, kills Remus and then founds the city. And you never hear from Remus uh, again. And in the Hebrew version, Cain and Abel, the same sort of thing happens. They have an argument uh, about, uh, well, there's a, an understanding about whose sacrifice is desirable to God. And it's Abel's, and Cain gets jealous about this and rises up and kills his brother. And then something really unique happens. You hear, you hear the voice of the victim. So the, the voice of uh, the blood of, of Abel cries out from the grave. And this is a very unique thing in our ancient mythologies that the, the victim has a voice. And that voice, that voice is vengeance and retribution. And the interesting thing is that this is how I would interpret the mark of Cain in that I think God wanted to stamp out violence in its tracks and, and, and put a mark on Cain so that no vengeance is taken upon him. Because what we see when we do take vengeance is that as the story progresses from Genesis 4 and, well, we'll skip 5 because that's a little weird, but, uh, <laughs> uh, and, then, and then into 6, 7, 8, and, and so on, we get this um, escalating violence. So you have Lamech in six generations is taking vengeance on a boy who cuts him or slaps him or something, and he's killing him. And then, and he even boasts, like, he'll take vengeance 70-fold or seven times 70-fold. And then you get this flood. And why does the flood happen? Well, according to the Hebrew Bible, it happens because, uh, and it puts it in, in these couplets, uh, violence and corruption uh, infected the whole land. And you can compare that flood story with the Babylonian story, Enema Elish, and the reason for the flood is something I think it's humans are noisy uh, and it's annoying to the gods. So uh, so they send the flood. But so you have this, I think, I think you have an enlightened understanding of human behavior and the propensity towards violence that is found in the Hebrew Bible that it isn't found in other mythologies. And Gerard noticed this, which is why. I think he was an atheist before he came to the Bible and, and, and saw that, wow, this is profoundly revelatory, right? This is, this is showing us something about ourselves and our relation to the gods or God in, in a very unique way and, 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 and culminating with the gospel and the cross and the resurrection. One of the phrases that you brought up earlier and I keep hearing as I study mimetic theory, is scapegoating. Can you talk to us about what scapegoating is and how it plays out in our world today? Sure. Uh, scapegoating is, in the Girardian sense, uh, essentially happens when a, a culture or a society is embroiled in infighting and finger-pointing and gossiping, and there's this out-of-control uh, violence that is taking place. 
And what cultures and religions have historically done is, is pointed all of their collective energy at, at one who can, who can um, become our, our focal point. And so instead of this violence that is all against all, all versus all, it, it turns into this collective effort of all against this one. And when we pour out our vengeance and wrath and fears and insecurities on this one, and we either excommunicate them or we kill them, we realize that this was cathartic. You know, this was, this actually brought peace where before we were fighting with this person and that person and everyone was fighting with everyone. And then you turn your energy to this one figure and, and you have catharsis and it brings peace. And then we, and then we look back, this is what we've traditionally mythologized things. We look back and we say, well, this figure must've been some sort of divine character, right? It, it must've been, he must've been sent by the gods to spare us from our, uh, our fighting. And, and, uh, it's, it's, uh, to use an analogy, the pressure release valve of, a like a, a pressure cooker. And we see this in, let's say, well, there's a couple stories. One that sticks out is from Numbers 25. And Numbers 25 tells a story of about that there was a um, there was a plague that that befell Israel because they were uh, marrying with the was it the Midianites the, um, and they were making sacrifices to the Midianite god and. Uh, Moses has, or, uh, you know, Moses has this, um, this directive to, to end this. And Phineas takes, he takes it upon himself to be zealous for God. And he, and he rams his spear through a Midianite Israelite couple in their tent. And what immediately happens is that the plague goes away. And so this is how we've uh, sort of mythologized this in that this was a good act. This was a divine act to, to pour out our wrath on this, this one couple here. The same sort of thing happens in uh, the Oedipus myth, you know, Oedipus the king. He's the, you know, he's the guy who uh, <laughs> kills his dad and marries his mom. And that's, uh, that brings this plague from Apollo. And, and the minute that they ex uh, they they kick Oedipus out of Thebes. That plague goes away, and we see this over and over. That if we can, if we can force, if or if we yeah, if we can like kind of coalesce around a surrogate, a scapegoat, then we will find peace. And this happens in the this happens in the gospel. I think it's Herod and Pilate. Hmm. They, there's this phrase. I think it's in Luke. Uh, I should have my Bible open. Um, there's a phrase in Luke where they weren't they weren't friends, but after they d decide to kill Jesus, they became friends that day. Actually, it might be in John's Gospel. Those who are are more they can I I, I know my Bible pretty good, but I can never recall certain things without looking it right. up. That's a part of the way I think. I don't know, <laughs> but anyway, the the point is that that where two people didn't like each other before, if they can come together and agree on the one. Uh, scapegoat that that it brings um, unity. We, we notice this when we gossip. You could gossip with someone you don't particularly like, but you'll find yourself really agreeing 
with them and really liking them in that moment. When you're gossiping about someone, you both can, uh, you, you both could be like, yeah, that, that, that person is a problem. They did do this. And, oh my gosh, I got to tell you this one story. Um, we, uh, it's sobering. It's sobering. Cause I catch myself doing it all the time. Right. And uh, I always I always laugh that Girardians can be as mimetic as anyone, <laughs> and we should know better. Right. But uh, it's just such a, it's a powerful force. It's such a powerful force. So, how has your understanding of mimetic theory made a difference in your personal life? You you just mentioned you should know better. I mean, is it just that little reminder that things aren't always as they appear, and that we have that tendency to scapegoat other people? Well, yeah, I guess that that worked as a natural segue. I suppose I didn't mean for that to happen, but um, yeah, I. I, I notice it in gossiping is, is a real big one. And that's such a subtle one because, you know, we're not being violent towards each other necessarily. We're just talking, talking shit. We're just gossiping. We're, but that really helps check you. And you almost, it's, it's, it's almost that you don't necessarily, you're not conscious about it going in. But once you start doing it, it's like, it's like when um, Peter realizes that he's denied Jesus three times in the, the, the rooster crows and then he's like, oh shit, like I, I did this. It's like once it, it, that's, that's how I see mimetic theory playing out in my life and helping me understand that when I start doing things, I need to stop and be conscious about it because this non-conscious imitative desire is going to happen. And what we need to do is have a, a conscious imitative desire. We need to take on models who aren't rivalrous. We need to, um, we need to be conscious about this. And that's why I gravitate towards Jesus, because to me, he was a model that refused to get into these rivalrous situations. And it's um, when you start going down that that route, I think if you're aware, you can become conscious quicker about it. I still think we're going to gossip. We're going to um, have a propensity towards scapegoating each other, even if we're aware. It just helps us remember that this is what's going on. Why do I desire this so much? And why do I want to take this person out so I can have that? Because I'm taking that person on as a model and they become an obstacle to me getting what I want to get. And so you have to, you have to take a step back and realize that that, that, that is what is going on. But it, it takes diligence and practice, like anything, it, in mindfulness and being contemplative and always uh, being aware and not just being this non-conscious human shell right? Uh, of not being in the moment and present and meditative. And, and it takes diligence and practice. Let's say somebody's just heard the theory, uh, mimetic theory for the first time, and they want to do a deep dive study. Who do you recommend that they read or listen to on this subject? And you, you have to go to the, uh, you know, the source. You have to go to Girard. Uh, Girard can be, uh, he was French and, and wrote in French. Uh, so, some of it can be a little dense. If you're going to start with Gerard, I would recommend I See Satan Fall Like Lightning, which was um, a book that I think is a little more digestible than, let's say, The Scapegoat or Things Hidden Since the Foundation of the World. That can be a little more dense. Uh, the Gerard Reader is, is good. Um, Michael Harden edited a book called, uh, what is it? Reading the Bible with Rene Gerard. Mm-hmm. And that was essentially put together, I think, as conversations with, I forget who, but um, that can be helpful. So go to Gerard. And um, if you really want to dive into some of this stuff, Michael Harden's The Jesus Driven Life was a game changer for me. 
though you will probably need to read it four or five times before you <laughs> right. really start to grasp things. Yeah. Um, I love Anthony Bartlett. He's also a Tottenham Hotspur fan, so I got to give a shout out to <laughs> Anthony Bartlett. James Allison is a Catholic theologian I think everyone needs to listen to, and he applies Gerard's um, thoughts. Let's see. Richard Beck is also is also one. He has a book called The Slavery of Death. It's not necessarily Gerardian, but um, it's uh, it's another it's another good one that helps explain why there's so much violence. And he he goes into like death anxiety and follows Ernest Becker. But I think I think those two sort of theories um, of why there's so much violence sort of fit together. So those would be uh, initially the ones on the top of my head. James Warren is also a really good, um, uh, a really good guy to turn to for an intro to mimetic theory. Um, shoot, I forget the title of his book. Oh no, I got it. Compassion or Apocalypse. Okay, we'll check those out, Matt. Thank you so much for helping unpack this for us and giving us a better understanding of mimetic theory. What projects do you have coming up, and how can our listeners engage with you online? Well, I uh, like you said in the opening. I'm not sure when this is going to be released, but um, May 20th, I've got a, a new podcast called The Bonfire Sessions that I'm doing with my best friend, Mike Machuga. And we're also writing a book with the same name that's going to come out in 2020. And I, uh, I've got a couple books that I'm working on. I'm doing one called The Genesis of Violence, which is a sort of creative uh, Girardian interpretation of the book of Genesis. Nice. And I'm, I'm partnering with an artist named Zach Parsons, who's doing artwork for it. When will that be available? I don't know. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I hope this year, our plan is this year, the art is taking a little longer than, than he would have probably liked. It's pretty detailed, and it's going to be full color and all that. So it's going to be it's going to be a beaut, I think. Um, I'm doing a devotional that choir is going to publish. I'm going to guess by the end of this year. Uh, I'd, I'd call it a loose, loosely call it a devotional, I suppose. If you know me, you know I, I can be a little um, crass and offensive, <laughs> offensive sometimes. So it's that's why we love you. Yeah, it's not your grandmother's devotional. Um, <laughs> yeah, and I'm writing for Pathos and doing the Heretic Happy Hour. So. I think the best place to get a hold of me is either through my website, allsetfree.com, or find me on Facebook, Matthew J. DiStefano. Friends, check out Matthew's Patreon page also at patreon.com slash mjdistefano for even more great content. Matthew, thank you so much for being with us today on the show. We really appreciate your time, brother. Yeah, thanks for having me. I had a blast, and um, I hope that, that this podcast helps people. So thanks. Thank you. You've been listening to the Messy Spirituality Podcast. You can find us on Facebook and visit us online at MessySpirituality.org. You can help spread the word about the podcast by leaving us a five-star review on iTunes and sharing links to each episode on your social media. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with another episode.